Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode on Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what's currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Mike Gagno. I'm Senior Director of Pharmacy Practice and Quality at ASHP. And joining me for today's episode are Dr. Kathy Yang, Infectious Disease Clinical Pharmacist at UCSF San Francisco Medical Center, and Dr. Monica Mahoney, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist, Outpatient Infectious Diseases at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Today, we're going to talk about the current state of COVID-19 and long COVID. Uh, so, Kathy, good to see you again. And Monica, great to see you too. Uh, welcome. Nice to be here again. Hey, guys. I feel like we're, uh, we're, we're kind of the, the crew now for COVID-19. We're missing Sarah this time, but uh, it's good to uh, continue this conversation on important topics. And uh, Kathy, as usual for this format, I'm going to turn to you to give us an update on the current state of COVID. Uh, what are cases looking like, vaccination rates, variants, what's new? Yeah, um, thanks, Mike. So um, not a lot of um, new data, which is good. You know, we're pretty much status quo. We have, since the last time we talked, where we, it was all about the Taylor Swift, Eris, EG.5 variant. Um, thankfully, because I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, we have moved away from that. I'm watching Monica's face because she's going to throw darts at me. I was, computer. Gonna, I was going to say, you know, th- this topic has been a long time coming, <laughs> which is also a lyric from her song. Oh, boy. Here we go. So, um, well, the last time we talked, we were in the sort of Eris era, um, EG.5. We've now moved on to a new variant, and this is HV.1. They're about neck and neck um, between HB.1 and EG.5. They're both about 25%. But, you know, after this week, it's going to take over. Um, so what does that mean for a vaccine? So we all know we have this new 2023-2024 um, monovalent vaccine, which was based on the XBB.1.5 variant. And so both EG.5 and HB.1 are sort of... Um, descendants of the XBB.1.5 vaccine. So we're good. You know, everything that we have so far seems to suggest that it should be fine that we're covered. Um, So that's the good news. And so more good news. Um, Our hospitalizations are pretty steady. Um, ED visits are going down. Our our mortality is about the same. It's been the same um, for weeks or so even months, it's about 2.5% of all deaths due to COVID. And that's been pretty stable. So um, I don't know if I would call that good news. It's not bad news because it's not getting worse, but we could do better. In terms of vaccine coverage, um, you know, we know how our US map looks and the best places that have vaccine coverage are the you know, upper Northeast where Monica is and the West Coast where I am. And the worst is um, the sort of southern U.S. states. Um, since the U.S. stopped collecting data on this from, from the CDC's perspective after the public health emergency ended in May, we don't have great granular data, but you can always go to CDC and look up your individual state and see how you're doing. So I would use that as your individual benchmark and see how your vaccine rates are in your area and, you know, move accordingly. So that's the update. 
Thanks. Um, we seem to be cycling through variants pretty quickly. In fact, my favorite thing about that Eris uh, variant was at the time we recorded, that was the predominant variant. By the time we released, there was something new. Um, so it doesn't seem like there's a lot of drift between the variants right now. I assume that's a good thing. So far, that's a good thing. We're not, we haven't drifted far enough that um, we can say that the vaccines, we've, we haven't drifted that far that um, we can, that we have to say, oh, the vaccines don't work. I mean, we're, we're in a good place. Everybody should get their booster. Well, it's not really called a booster anymore. It's this new vaccine. Yeah. Um, we're no longer calling it a booster. It's, it's all the other vaccines are gone. So start with this one. Um, so, you know, we're in a good place. Everybody should be vaccinated. Everybody should be revaccinated. And the guidelines for immune compromise in that respect have not changed. So um, whatever you, course you were on before, keep going. Sounds good. Well, let's break into our new topic. And we've, we actually struggled with, with what to cover in this podcast because we have been talking about doing a long COVID podcast for a while. And, uh, you know, the government just keeps releasing information on commercialization of, of COVID therapeutics. Um, that information does seem to be changing week by week at the moment. So rather than go into that commercialization and then have it reflect inaccurate information by the time we release it. Um, we'll keep you posted on updates on, on that through other means. Um, so let's go ahead and start talking about long COVID. Um, what do we know about long COVID? What is it? Yeah. So I'm so glad we're talking about this because I feel like, you know, we've been sort of in this emergency um, place for the past three years where we're sort of fighting the fire that's in front of us. And now we're at a place where we can start thinking about um, long COVID or um, infection-associated chronic diseases, which is what long COVID is. And um, it's got lots of names, long COVID, post-COVID condition, long-haul COVID, post-acute COVID, long-term effects of COVID, post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. It's got all, all different kinds of names. Um, and I think the thing to remember is that these infection-associated chronic diseases are not new. You know, we've seen this with polio, where pe after people get polio, they can get, you know, a post-polio um, syndrome. You know, patients who get Epstein-Barr virus can be at high risk for things like MS. Um, and so we know this happens. I think the reason this is so top of mind now is just by sheer scale of the number of people who had COVID around the world, you know, it's a numbers game, right? So it feels much more common just by fact of our numbers are so big. So um, that's something to just remember. I mean, at the moment, it's about 10% of all people who have had COVID worldwide. And so when you think about that, that's a huge, huge number of people. Well, that, that actually is a good qu question. So how common is it? So you mentioned, you know, we have, we've had a millions of people who have been infected with COVID. So how many would you expect to have these long-term uh, sequelae? Yeah, so of course, um, long COVID is really hard to diagnose. And so probably the the overall number is much bigger than we actually think it is because people actually have to come forward and say, you know, I don't feel quite right, right? So the estimate is about 10% but it's probably even higher just by lack of awareness, um, 
from people who have had COVID. And, um, you know, this can happen in patients who knew they had COVID, but also in patients who had asymptomatic COVID. So who actually knows what the true number is? But I think that's a great place for pharmacists to be able to intervene. You know, we see a lot of patients and if something's not right, having just being aware that, you know, in your differential when you're talking to patients of how they're feeling, it might be something that requires referral on. Uh, so you mentioned diagnosis. What are the signs and symptoms and how do you diagnose it? Yeah, so that's um, a great question. So there, it wasn't until um, we were well into the pandemic before COVID even got its ICD-9 coding. So it's actually hard to know what the baseline number is. And when we think about long COVID, we have to think about it from both the perspective of sort of the signs and symptoms and what is that reflecting in the body. So um, we do know that long COVID can cause all kinds of organ and organ damage. And um, that can happen in basically every organ system that we're talking about, the brain, um, the lungs, bone, tissue, the liver, kidney, the GI tract, everything. So you can have over... Uh, there's over, I think, 200 different symptoms that people have looked at. And it can be things like, um, you know, GI upset, nausea um, from, a, from a GI perspective. You can have, you know, immune dysregulation, so more of autoimmune type flare. You can have, I think the most common one that people talk about is the sort of COVID brain fog. And there are clearly neurological um symptoms associated with there's, um, you know, cognitive impairment, fatigue, sleep disorders, memory loss, you can get sensory issues with, you know, tinnitus, or your ears ringing. And a lot of the symptoms of long COVID actually overlap um, pretty heavily with chronic fatigue syndrome, or myalgic encephalomyelitis or um, ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. How about prevention? I know Monica has been listening intently, either that or she's trying to decide if she should cheer for the New England Patriots or the Kansas City Chiefs now. Um, but Monica, what do, what do we know about um, prevention of long COVID? Does, does taking any of the antivirals that treat SARS-CoV-2 help? Or is there anything uh, that listeners can do to prevent getting long COVID if they get infected? Yeah. Um, so the number one risk factor for getting long COVID is getting COVID in the first place. If you don't get COVID, you can't get long COVID. Um, so avoiding infection, period, that will help prevent it. But that's not a likely scenario. Now, that's not realistic for where we are in this day and age. Um, so other risk factors that are associated with it is if you do get COVID, having more severe disease, that has been linked to uh, long COVID symptoms. Um, additionally, not being vaccinated has been linked to developing long COVID as well. So are there ways that we can mitigate our risks that if we do get infected, it will be a less severe presentation? Uh, and can we get the vaccine? Now, I know that a big focus of our previous presentations and podcasts has been on the immunocompromised population. Uh, Kathy went over our 2023-24 vaccine rates. Um, I do want to say that in our immunocompromised patients, particularly in our solid organ transplant, bone marrow transplant patients, I would say that those uh, uptake in vaccine is higher in that population. So I think our immunocompromised uh, patients are a little more risk averse and seeking out vaccines. Um, 
we still have difficulty in getting the 2324 vaccine in our clinic. Uh, so we've been trying to prioritize maybe our higher risk patients again, which sounds like back in the early days of the vaccine. You know, we're, we're all getting flashbacks and, and trauma from that. Um, so if you want to um, decrease your chances of getting long COVID, make sure that you're up to date on your vaccines. Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a product like Evershield, and this is the one time I'm going to say brand name because I cannot pronounce the generic name of that one. Um, hopefully, in the future, there will be a new 2.0 version that maybe in a future live symposia, someone in this podcast will talk about. But, you know, the, any preventative me uh, measures like that. Now, once someone is diagnosed with COVID, you know, we do have some therapeutic options. We are in a better place. We're in 2023. There are FDA-approved uh, products. There are emergency use authorized products that hopefully will soon get full uh, approval as well. And there have been investigations on if someone is diagnosed with COVID, do the receipt of any of these products actually help prevent long COVID? Um, this is an emerging area of research. You know, we still don't have strict definitions. If you look at the studies, uh, some of them are retrospective. Some of them are uh, prospective, but they're still mostly observational. And they have different definitions of when we actually look for long COVID. Uh, some of the studies look at 90 days out. Some look at um, six months out. One study looked at 300 days out. So they have different uh, endpoints, so it's hard to draw conclusions. But bear with me. We're going to go through a ride of all the potential therapies that we have had and maybe will have in the future. So the first one that I came across was convalescent plasma. And I'm like, why am I reading about this again in 2023? Um, they, uh, the CDC does have a website uh, looking at what long COVID is, and then it sends you on a bunch of different links. And one of them is linking to the um, recovered trials, which we'll circle back on. Uh, and one of the first ones that they talk about is use of convalescent plasma or patients who have been diagnosed with COVID receive convalescent plasma and then looking out to see, comparing those patients to those who received placebo or no therapy, was there a decrease? And I think originally we thought that maybe there was a signal convalescent plasma could help decrease long COVID. Um, but unfortunately, the biggest study to date uh, that had about 800 some odd patients in it did not find a significant correlation between receipt of convalescent plasma and prevention of long COVID. But interestingly, this study did find that more patients who had high baseline levels of interleukin-6 went on to develop long COVID. So while their intent of looking to see whether convalescent plasma had any effect on long COVID didn't really pan out, they did find a signal that said, hey, high rates of interleukin-6 might lead to long COVID. So can we treat and decrease uh, interleukin-6 levels at the beginning to prevent long COVID? So there's a lot of um, hypothesis generating studies, and I'm sure that in the future we'll be seeing IL-6 inhibitors and whether or not that impacts long COVID. <laughs> that was, well, that's interesting. And so just to be clear, this is convalescent plasma that was used to treat acute COVID, right? Not someone who's already been diagnosed with long COVID. Correct. Yep. And thank you for that distinction. Yeah. All, all the studies that I'll be quoting um, were initially looking at someone's diagnosed with COVID in the acute setting. Let's treat that acute COVID. And then we have long-term data on these patients. Let's go back and investigate to see whether or not they had these lingering symptoms that Kathy mentioned three months, six months, you know, a year out. I think that totally makes sense about the IL-6 because um, one of the risk factors for long COVID 
clearly as if you had really severe COVID. Although even even though you can have long COVID, even just if you had very mild, for patients who had severe COVID end up in the hospital and end up on um, in that situation where you have the cytokine release syndrome and you have to go on IL-6 inhibitors like tocilizumab, they're the ones also, you know, at highest risk for for um, long COVID. So mechanistically, like it, it all makes sense, right? I mean, it's clearly the immune system is just going haywire at that point. I think I can actually sense Kathy pharmacy nerding out right now as we're talking. I totally am. <laughs> like it, it's great when you have like a biologically plausible explanation for yeah. everything that happens down the line, right? I agree. That's like that's like the best case scenario. It's when you don't know what the heck you're doing and you're like, I don't know. Well, but that begs the question, is there any data in patients who receive tocilizumab or, or an IL-6 inhibitor and prevention of COVID? That's a great question. I was going to say, not that I found. I went hunting for that. I, I searched for all those combination terms. Um, a lot of retrospective studies saying that, hey, yeah, high baseline interleukin-6 can lead to uh, long COVID, but nothing about that treatment. So if we have you know, listeners who want to take up a PGY1, PGY2, or a fun research project, there you go. Yeah, nice retrospective chart review there. Um, Monica, you said something that I went when you first started talking um, that I want to circle back to, and you were, you were talking about and you compromise patients and maybe a higher risk. What exactly are the risk factors for long COVID? Have we identified anything other than more severe COVID equals higher potential for long COVID? I don't think we have clear <laughs> risk factors aside from, um, you know, severe disease is more correlated. Lack of vaccination is more correlated. Uh, people who end up being hospitalized or need intensive care, uh, intensive care. And that goes back to something that Kathy said. Is it because they were in the ICU or is it because their immune system is going haywire? And that's what leads to the uh, the lingering sequela. And then this kind of catch-all people who had underlying health conditions prior to COVID-19. Um, but doesn't really tease out what those are, unless Kathy, she, she's looking excited if she has more to add. There's one interesting signal that I found really interesting because I'm always interested in sort of the health equity piece. And um, when they looked at the data, it seems like um, Hispanic and Latinx patients tend to be at higher risk for long COVID. And that is likely some kind of health disparity thing. And this is a really interesting thing because they even looked at it as, you know, wh why Latinx, Hispanic? And it turns out the thing that they honed in was the inability to rest fully when they first get COVID. So if they can't take care of themselves, they don't have the opportunity to take care of themselves and really rest when they are sick, those patients actually tended to be more at risk. And that that signal came out specifically in Latinx and Hispanic. And so I thought that was really interesting. Wow, that's interesting and more than a little sad too, um, that a health disparity might, well, we know it happens anyway, but in this specific case that health disparities lead to longer term sequelae. Um, speaking of longer term, how long does long COVID last? Does it, does it resolve or is it something that you're basically with the rest of your life? It doesn't look like it resolves. Um, and of course, we have to think about this. Remember, COVID has only been around for three years or so. 
So most of the data on it not resolving so far, the long-term data, of course, happened in patients who are unvaccinated at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think uh, the data is still out on whether or not um, how this plays out in our fully vaccinated population. So from the early data, it seems like it does linger. And one of the things um, that um, that I find really interesting is the fact that COVID in itself is a risk factor for development of diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, likely because it reservoirs, you know, in the pancreatic cells, it reservoirs in all types of the body, uh, places in the body like all viruses do. So that is something that is coming out that, you know, patients who end up getting COVID can actually have lifelong you know, diabetic diseases, um, glucose intolerance, et cetera. So that's something that will need to be monitored. Wow, that's another interesting little factoid that uh, I've learned during the podcast. Monica, give us some hope. So you talked about treat, uh, prevention of, of uh, you know, anything that might prevent long COVID. Is there anything to treat long COVID? Yeah, so I never got to finish all of my uh, data about the, the other agents, but this is a nice segue because convalescent plasma, I feel like that was more inpatient. And we haven't really talked about inpatient. The focus of our presentations and podcasts has been more outpatient. So let's move on to treatment of COVID in the outpatient setting and how that treatment uh, correlates to prevention or not preventing long COVID. Uh, so we're going to talk about three drugs, remdesivir, Mike's favorite, nirmatrivir, ritonavir, uh, and then malnupiravir, and see if they have any signals or correlation with preventing long COVID. Um, so remdesivir, I think, uh, in, what's really interesting, fascinating, nerdy, exciting, that's the word I'm looking for, is that all of this data has been published in the last couple of months. Like 2023 has been when I would say pretty decent long COVID studies have been published. You know, it's not some of this questionable early COVID publications that we're rushing to get out there. Um, these are based on prospective studies. They have a decent number of patients. Yeah, they might be retrospective, um, but I think they are designed much better. So we, we have some useful information that we can take away. Um, so the first is remdesivir, and this is the one that I'm going to go back and contradict what I just said, because uh, it only had about 100 and some odd patients in each arm. Um, but early days of COVID, March of 2020, remember those days, uh, to January of 2021, patients who were diagnosed with COVID during that time period. Uh, this was during the Wild West of treatment. We didn't really have any agents. So we used a bunch of different products. Uh, and this one group, they went back and looked at all of their patients that were treated. They teased out what therapy patients got. And the focus of this manuscript was um, 160 some odd patients that got remdesivir, 165 who didn't get any therapy and compared outcomes um, at baseline and then at 180 days. They did uh, several multivariate adjustments, and they did find that remdesivir decreased the risk of long COVID with an odds ratio of 0 0.641. 95% uh, confidence interval was below one, so it does look like there is a correlation. So if you had a patient that developed COVID, received remdesivir in their first five days of symptoms, um, that seemed to prevent development of long COVID. Similar study, but much larger study uh, based out of the VA looking at nirmatrivir and long COVID. So same thing, patients 
developed COVID. They tested positive. This time it was in 2022, uh, so much more recent, uh, January to December of 2022, uh, not hospitalized. So our ambulatory patient population had at least one risk factor for severe disease, which would qualify for the receipt of nermatraviritonavir. And they compared patients who either got nermatraviritonavir versus no treatment. And then they estimated what their risk of developing long COVID at 180 days or six months was. 240 some odd thousand patients had no therapy compared to 35, 36,000 patients that got nermatraviritonavir, so huge numbers. Um, they did find that the receipt of nermatraviritonavir within the first five days of symptoms decreased the risk of long COVID with a uh, relative risk reduction of 0.74. Again, 95% confidence interval was statistically significant. That also correlated to an absolute risk reduction of about 4.5%. Um, they did a number of sub-analyses looking at whether the patients were um, unvaccinated, vaccinated, boosted, because that was a term that we used back then, um, whether they had primary COVID infection or if this was a reinfection, they found that receipt of nermatraviritonavir prevented development of long COVID in all of those subpopulations. Now, remember, I said that this was done in the VA system, so we're going to have a number of caveats. 74% of the patients were white, 88% of the patients were male. But if you look at the demographics, 18% of patients did have cancer, 5% were immunocompromised. So we're getting closer to the patient population that we have been talking about in this entire series, um, where we can extrapolate that these results could apply to our immunocompromised patients if they receive nermatraviritonavir as well. And then the final study, and then I'll let you talk, <laughs> is malnupiravir and long COVID, another VA study. Um, patients with a positive COVID test and one risk factor for severe disease um, between January 2022 and January 2023. Uh, about 11,500 received malnupiravir, 217,000 received no uh, treatment. Also calculated in a absolute risk reduction estimate at 180 days. And they also found that receipt of malnupiravir within five days of symptom onset reduced the risk of long COVID, uh, risk, a relative risk reduction of 0.86, 95% confidence interval below one, and a absolute risk reduction at 180 days of 2.97%. Similar caveats, VA study, 79% white patients, 92% male, but again, 23% of the patients had cancer, 5% were immunocompromised, so we have more data in our immunocompromised patients. So summarizing what I just went over, it seems that patients who developed COVID, they had risk factors for severe disease. If they got remdesivir, nermatraviritonavir, or malnupiravir within five days of their symptom onset, it does look like that prevents progression to long COVID at six months. Um, it's refreshing to see data of all three of these medications because we know particularly in our immunocompromised patients, um, they may have drug interactions that preclude the use of a ritonavir-containing agent. We may have access issues where we can't get them into an infusion clinic to get their three days of remdesivir. Um, you know, malnupiravir, we haven't really used that much in our patients, but we do have data that shows that it is useful and it can prevent some of these long-term sequelae that we are just learning about. So I, I think it's great that we have three different options that we can potentially use at our disposal. So that all seems to support what we've been talking about, that you know, more severe COVID would be higher risk for long COVID. And if you're on an antiviral within 
know, whatever the therapeutic window is for, for starting treatment, you're more likely to have less severe disease. Um, and so, yeah, that all kind of makes sense. Um, but how about actually after diagnosis of long COVID, is there anything available for treating that? Do we know of any, any studies or, or any data out there? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, there are no randomized control trials for treatment of long COVID, which is crazy. Um, so we don't have anything therapeutic. Uh, I think the only thing, and Monica, please correct me if I'm wrong, is basically symptom management, very similar to what you would see with chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, it, for whatever symptoms that overlap, you treat the same way. Um, you're treating the, the symptoms, not necessarily the underlying disease. So for patients who have, you know, autonomic dysfunction and have like postural hypotension or um, any of those types of symptoms, that's what you're treating. But you can't really get to the underlying pathophysiology. Monica, have you seen anything? Um, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's symptomatic treatment. It's not really an infectious disease, right? I know a lot of institutions, mine, Kathy's included, we have long COVID clinics where if you have a patient that meet criteria for this, they can be enrolled, they can visit, there are support groups, there are clinical trials that they can be a part of. I was looking at the composition of our uh, long COVID clinic. There's nobody from ID on there. There's room, there's neurology, there's psych, there's pulmonary, there's social work. ID wasn't on there, and I don't know if there is a role for ID there. But I will say, it, referral to long COVID clinics, I think that's beneficial. There are support groups, and then there are certain clinical trials that are enrolling patients. We don't have any um, therapeutic options currently, but um, there is something called the RECOVER trial. It's an NIH-funded trial. RECOVER stands for Researching COVID to Enhance Recovery, and it's like a large adaptive platform trial. Apparently, there are two active arms that launched in uh, August of this year, RECOVER VITAL, which was uh, which is going to test a longer co course of nermatovir-ritonavir to treat acute COVID to see if that has any impact on long COVID. Additionally, Recover Neuro, which will be testing brain training and simulation interventions for brain fog, memory, and problem-solving issues and other cognitive effects of long COVID. Additionally, they say that in the coming months, two additional Recover trials will launch. So there's Recover Sleep to try to figure out changes in sleep patterns and how to better address that following COVID. Uh, and then Recover Autonomic, which will uh, study treatments related to symptoms of the autonomic nervous system, which regulates heart rate, breathing, digestion, among other functions. Um, so I don't think that there is one magic bullet therapeutic pill that you can take to help. There are large ongoing studies to see if there are a multitude of interventions that might help resolve some of these chronic conditions. Um, and then I do know that Kathy wanted to mention her favorite drug, metformin, in all of this. Oh, well, yes. So metformin, because I think it's, this is, you know, one of the few drugs that in the ID world where you look at a non-ID drug from a repurposed from something else and actually worked. I mean, look at all the drugs that we've repurposed hydroxychloroquine, metformin, ivermectin, fluvoxamine, like the list goes on and on, right? 
Um, but there is one study called the COVID out trial that um, was done and published in Lancet in early this year, looking at metformin for prevention. And actually, that looked really promising. It actually does um, decrease the hazard ratio for development of long COVID. Um, and so that one, I think, looks like it, it is something that could be useful. So you would have to take it um, when you get COVID and it's within four days of symptoms onset. It's confusing because the NIH treatment guideline says it does not work for um, treatment of COVID, which is absolutely true. But in this case, you would be taking it not for treatment of COVID, but for prevention of long COVID. And from that perspective, it looks like it's very promising. Well, that's an interesting one. And I think we'll we'll leave it there for... Uh, for further development discussion of, of trials, um, I think, as you noted, it's uh, it's relatively new. It's been three years, and uh, I think we'll hopefully understand a lot more of this and and know a lot more about treatment and management in the coming years. That is all the time we have today. I do want to thank Dr. Kathy Yang, Dr. Monica Mahoney for joining us today for the final podcast following up the presentation on COVID nineteen in the immunocompromised population. This goes all the way back to mid-year 2022. It's been such a pleasure working with you two and, and, of course, Dr. Sarah Parsons, who's not with us today. But join us with Dr. Sarah Parsons, our pediatrics faculty member, who uh, will be joining us live in Anaheim. Uh, and if you're not going to be in Anaheim, don't worry. We are also broadcasting via live webinar. That presentation is Tuesday, December 5th. Uh, it'll be a midday session titled COVID-19 Now and Beyond. Where do we go from here? If you haven't before, I encourage you to check out all of ASHP's online resources, such as the COVID-19 Resource Center. The living handout from the original webinar will be updated and posted with this podcast recording. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you've enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Monica, Kathy, thank you so much for this past year of, of such great, rich content and uh, keeping our listeners up to date on COVID-19. It was so much fun. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing everybody in uh, Disneyland where we're, we're going to go hunting for good food. Take care. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.